boys and girls, children of all ages. One Man's Beat Podcast presents Acceptable in the 90s with Big Meaty Hooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooo
this year would see them take the dubious honour of biggest shutout of all time, having failed to win any of their 11 major nominations. In sports, San Diego Chargers kicker John Carney boots six field goals in an 18 points to 17 win over the Houston Oilers to set a new NFL record with 29 consecutive field goals made. In music, Mariah Carey's Dream Lover is still at number one in the US, while in the UK... Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince with a new number one in the United Kingdom, with Boom Shake the Room, an underrated banger indeed. And the box office remains unchanged from yesterday. So on pay-per-view reviews, I normally waffle on about something of major importance for whatever company I'm covering, before we get to the show. And there's a lot going on over at WCW particularly concerning the NWA World Heavyweight title. The fact that the NWA World title is still contested in WCW is quite a long, convoluted tale, but I'll try and help make sense of it. So when Jim Crockett Promotions was sold to Ted Turner in November of 1988, they were the National Wrestling Alliance's biggest member, and as such, the company held a lot of sway and influence over whose waist the NWA world title went around. By late 1993, with the wrestling industry still in one of its worst recessions in history, the relationship between Ted Turner's World Championship Wrestling and the National Wrestling Alliance was reaching a breaking point. In the grand scheme of things, back in 1988, WCW needed the NWA as much as the NWA needed WCW. For WCW, the affiliation with the NWA gave the new TBS-owned venture much-needed credibility and helped maintain a level of consistency for long-time fans who, despite a myriad of changes to the on-screen product, could be reassured that the history, lineage and tradition of the NWA that they'd grown to love under Jim Crockett promotions would remain intact with TBS. But as WCW grew and looked to become a national player against the increasingly beleaguered World Wrestling Federation, WCW left the NWA in late 1991. Gary Juster, a long-time promoter and member of the NWA, became the WCW's conduit to the alliance, ensuring that WCW could still feature the NWA world title and eventual world tag team titles on their broadcasts. For the NWA, however, the relationship with WCW was a bit more serious. In less than 20 years, the NWA, once the largest sanctioning body in professional wrestling, had shrunk from over 30 territories to less than five functioning, dues-paying ones. On April 30th, 1992, long-time promoter Don Owen, beloved promoter of Pacific Northwest Wrestling out of Portland, Oregon, finally closed up shop, selling what remained to Sandy Barr. The departure of Don Owen, who was the last of the old-time promoters, marked an end of an era for the NWA, and 16 months later, in August of 1993, WCW was one of only three viable NWA affiliates. The late Dennis Coraluzzo was running NWA New Jersey without television, while Jim Crockett Jr., who was now free from his non-compete clause with TBS, was working to get his new NWA promotion, the World Wrestling Network, or WWN, off the ground with the help of Paul Heyman and Todd Gordon. 
Gordon was the founder of Eastern Championship Wrestling, and Paul Heyman was working with him and Crockett to book and tape the new WWN promotion, which was to be filmed in high definition and broadcast over the internet of all things in 1993. And in the summer of 1993, promoters Coraluzzo, Howard Brody and Steve Rickard, who promoted All-Star Pro Wrestling in New Zealand, agreed to a joint presidency of the NWA. As Todd Gordon's ECW prepared to join the cartel, who were the only full member with weekly television, the NWA sought to reclaim its autonomy from WCW, who had been doing as they wished with the NWA World Heavyweight and World Tag Team titles as the NWA floundered. While WCW's inability to work with fellow NWA promoters was a major bone of contention, it was WCW preparing to book Rick Rude as the NWA champion behind the cartel's back that was the final straw. The NWA was refusing to sign off on Rude winning their world title, which was a move that WCW was all but boxed into seeing out as they had booked weeks, nay months of TV in the spring, with Rude as the new NWA champion at the first batch of the infamous Orlando tapings, where four months of TV was taped in advance of the pay-per-views. As Fall Brawl 93 grew closer, and the advertised world title match between Rude and Ric Flair loomed, negotiations regarding some kind of settlement dragged on, including one option that would have seen Rude win the NWA world title, only to drop it to an NWA-approved wrestler at a future NWA event. WCW's new executive producer, Eric Bischoff, wasn't worried about losing the NWA name and wasn't interested in appeasing the cartel. Realising that the NWA needed WCW far more than WCW needed the cartel now. And for WCW to grow, Bischoff knew that the promotion had to cast off regional shackles and push to create a new national identity. As WCW reduced their live events, consolidated TV tapings and cut geographically undesirable talent, the NWA found itself fighting a losing battle for survival. While much of WCW's business figures were either stagnant or moving in the wrong direction, TV ratings for their flagship Saturday night programme were solid, routinely matching, and sometimes beating, the national numbers for the WWF's Monday Night Raw. Though wrestling was in the midst of a serious slump, one largely brought on by the actions of those at the top, there were glimmers of hope for World Championship Wrestling as the autumn of 1993 grew closer. Gary Juster had done a remarkable job in maintaining a relationship between both companies, but that relationship would break down completely on September the 1st of 1993, when Juster's NWA membership expired. Coupled with WCW's refusal to allow the NWA World Champion to wrestle on member-affiliated cards, the National Wrestling Alliance made the decision to officially strip Ric Flair of the NWA World Heavyweight title. WCW, however, continued to use the NW name on their television programming, leading up to the Fall Brawl event. Thus, on September the 13th, 1993, the NWA filed suit to stop WCW from using the names NWA and Big Gold Belt. Days later, a contract from October 1992 between then-executive vice president of WCW, Bill Watts, and then-NWA president Seiji Sakaguchi was discovered. The contract outlined the sale of the big gold belts to WCW while maintaining the NWA cartel's control over the NWA brand itself. 
Therefore, on September 16th, 1993, District Judge Richard Voorhees ruled that WCW was legally allowed to keep the big gold belt, but was forbidden from using the NWA name in any way, shape or form in association with the belt at Fall Brawl or at any time moving forward. The NWA in return was forced to repay the mandatory $25,000 deposit plus interest that WCW paid for use of the NWA's world title. The big gold belt would go on to be renamed the WCW International Heavyweight Championship and become the company's secondary world title, effective as of this pay-per-view. But the NWA world title drama wasn't the only notable news in WCW. After years of lagging far behind the WWF as the distant and default number two promotion, WCW was continuing to make moves to close the gap. Beyond modernising their television and production values, WCW was beginning to woo long-time WWF talent to their side, with the first major acquisition to be Mean Gene Oakland. Oakland, who had been with the WWF since 1984, left the Federation in early September 1993, signing with WCW on September 10th 1993. Oakland, whose final appearance on WWF TV would be on the September 18th 1993 edition of Superstars, wouldn't actually debut on WCW TV for a few months, but the defection of Oakland, one of the most recognisable personalities in all of wrestling, shocked fans and marked the start of an aggressive period of acquisition that would soon change the foundation of pro wrestling forever. And of course, alongside all the behind-the-scenes commotion, it's easy to forget that there's a wrestling card to talk about. The main bulk of the build for Fall Brawl was around the return of one of WCW's flagship matches, War Games. Appearing to be booked as a blow-off to the Sting and Davy Boy Smith vs. Masters of the Powerbomb programme from the summer, Big Van Vader and Sid Vicious would be joined by newly debuting team Harlem Heat to face Sting, Davy Boy Smith and their partners for the evening, the WCW United States Champion, the Natural Dustin Rhodes, and the Shockmaster, a man who was now leaning into his famously clumsy debut at the last Clash of the Champions show. Fred Ottman had been a good sport about this, but as I mentioned previously, it's hard to see how the character is going to progress from all of this. And amid all of the drama between WCW and the NWA, it's important to focus on ravishing Rick Rude, who has displayed a harder edge to his character recently, being less about gyrating for the ladies and more about displaying a more ruthless, competitive element to his repertoire. In targeting Ric Flair on TV in such brutal fashion by delivering a rude awakening on August 28, 1993, when he was a guest on Flair for the Gold, he jumped right to the top of WCW's contenders list for the big gold belt. And while Rick has been remembered as a man who held two companies' number two titles, this was a chance to claim a recognised world title. Fall Brawl would also mark the in-ring return of Cactus Jack, who had been seen on TV in the legendarily interminable Lost in Cleveland vignettes, claiming to have suffered amnesia following a powerbomb from Vader. After spending weeks on television taunting Harley Race, the man from Truth or Consequences New Mexico will step in the ring to face Race's latest charge, Worcester's hardest man, Yoshi Kwan. So without further ado, let's break down the action, shall we? WCW were coming to us from the Astro Arena in Houston, Texas, before a crowd of 6,000 fans. Commentary for the evening was provided by Excalibur's lapdog, Tony Schiavone, 
and Jesse the Body Ventura. The school bells are ringing. Summer has turned to fall. The children are back in class. And mom and dad have returned to their peaceful way of life. But all is not well at this hour. WCW is invading Houston, Texas. You'll see three title matches. Ricky the Dragon Steamboat will defend his TV title against Lord Steven Regal. The Nasty Boys go up against the world tag team champions Arn Anderson and Paul Roma, the Horseman. Nature Boy Ric Flair puts his world heavyweight title on the line with ravishing Rick Rude. But the most explosive match in wrestling history will finish it off. It's War Games. Live from the Astro Arena in Houston, Texas, it's Fall Brawl 93. They are jam-packed to the Raptors in Houston for Fall Brawl. And yes, World Championship Wrestling is in Texas. Tony Schiavone along with Jesse the Body Ventura. As you take a look at our crowd, Jesse, Welcome to the state of Texas. Well, I'll tell you what, Tony Schiavone, I'm, I'm down here with all these Texicans, and we just had more fireworks than what they saw at the Alamo. You hear the chant of Houston, a capacity crowd on hand, a fever pitch, as we said this weekend on our television programs. This is the most dangerous day in World Championship Wrestling, War Games The Match Beyond. I'll tell you, I'm dressed for war, Tony. This is combat gear and I'm ready for combat. Let's get it on. Let's go to Eric Bischoff, Eric. All right, thanks, Tony and Jesse. And in addition to War Games The Match Beyond, we've got three world title matches. Without any further delay, let's go to the man who made the Rumble famous, Michael Buffer. And for those of you who have been watching along, this is one of WCW's more odder opening videos. It was something different, but it largely felt out of place too, which sounds ominous going into this event. After Tony has finished making both the viewers jump with the fact that his microphone is far louder than anyone else's, as well as lying to the viewers at home that the show has sold out, tell that to the hard camera that clearly makes out all the gaps, he throws to Michael Buffer, who proceeds to say nothing as the participants of our first title contest of the night walk out to the ring, as Lord Stephen Regal, accompanied by the dreadful Sir William, looks to make destiny by winning his first title in WCW, the World Television Championship, from the defending but clearly injured champion, Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. The steamer is still coming out in his early 90s WWF gear, which still looks out of place in a company like WCW that prides its product over presentation. As you'll no doubt remember, the dragon was injured by Regal on yesterday's episode of Saturday Night, when the Lord hit Ricky in the ribs with Sir William's umbrella. Ricky does excellent work throughout the entire match to sell the fact that every offensive manoeuvre hurts him as much as it does the challenger as well, which was a lovely touch from the veteran, and something that some of the younger guys could learn from, as we'll get to later. Michael Buffer introduces the participants in the ring, boxing style, which I actually don't mind. It was jarring initially, as we're used to wrestlers being announced on their way to the ring, but for title contests, it gives the match a little bit of gravitas, in my opinion. 
I know Buffer gets stick for just being a catchphrase, and he will cost WCW a lot of money going forward, but his voice is the voice of boxing announcing, and he adds a touch of class to any contest. By contrast, and through no fault of his own, Gary Michael Capetta, who announced the non-title contest tonight, looks like an absolute amateur. But then I don't really rate him anyway. So going into the match, Regal literally has an answer to everything that Steamboat throws at him. Steamboat immediately jumps Regal after the bell, but Regal attacks his ribs. Ricky answers by sending Regal out to the ramp and then back inside for a flying chop, but his ribs hurt too much. The two fight back and forth until Steamboat takes control with some arm work and even lures Regal in by playing possum on the mat. Steamboat maintains the advantage with a crossbody and short arm scissors. Regal tries to lift him out though with an impressive display of power, but Ricky takes him back to the mat. However, Regal attacks the ribs again and hits a somersault senton, before stopping a couple of comeback attempts and locks Steamboat in both a Canadian backbreaker and a surfboard stretch. Steamboat's ribs keep stopping him from taking any kind of control until he reverses a tombstone pile driver, leading into multiple pin attempts with an O'Connor roll and a crossbody, but he hurts his ribs again. The finish comes when Regal throws Steamboat over the ropes, with Steamboat attempting to skin the cat, but Sir William uses a referee distraction to hit him with an umbrella, before Regal applies a German suplex for the win in 17 minutes and 5 seconds. And while this match was devoid of any real excitement, the story being told was excellent, with Steamboat continuously fighting from behind due to his injury, attempting to hold back a man who had the upper hand from beginning to end. The commentary, particularly from Ventura, was excellent as well, with the body offering some excellent analysis and pointing out the changing dynamic of the match as Ricky's ribs continued to bother him. Sir William was even useful for a change, Plus I'm English, so explicit bias means that Regal was the deserving victor here. The finish made perfect sense for the old school heel act of Regal as well. This match was an excellent way to kick things off. The Nasty Boys then appear at ringside next to join that Ken Doll lookalike Eric Bischoff for an interview. Alright, thanks guys, and as you can see I'm here with undoubtedly two of the nastiest men in this sport personification of the word nasty. What's the big secret? You've been talking about it for weeks. Share it with us. Well, in a couple of seconds away, the clock's ticking down for two of the four horsemen. We got a big, big secret setting right at the end of Nasty Street. You gotta walk that street to Nastyville and survive and face the biggest secret the Nasty Boys have ever, ever unleashed. Tell them, Mobs. Not only! Bischoff, do we have a big surprise? But right now, the Nasty Boys will tell you how we're gonna finish the Horsemen. A bulldog off the top rope. One, two, three, and you're looking at the new World Tag Team Champions, baby. Nasty and perhaps overconfident. World Tag Team titles on the line, the Nasty Boys taking on Arn Anderson and Paul Roma. That coming your way later on. Let's get down to the ring. And I wonder what the secret is going to be tonight and how it affects the Horsemen. It was also good of Brian Nobbs to give away the finish as well. One less scoop for Dave Meltzer. Also, where's Missy Hyatt? She and Eric are normally joined at the hip. 
Well, the amazing start to the show soon starts to feel like it was a million years ago, as the world's largest Chris Jericho impersonator, Big Sky, accompanied by his 90s James Hetfield Tash, has the unenviable task of making Charlie Norris look less awful. The fans seem to love Charlie Norris here, who waddles out looking like he's been on the beer since Thursday. I was completely baffled by the positive response he got as well. I mean, have these people seen his matches? Anyway, a sizeable section of the audience get into the we want flair and boring chants almost immediately as these two lumbering ponces do their worst. We calm bars, boring clubbing blows, Charlie Norris's sloppy footwork and terrible war dance hulk up. Oh, this match had it all, and more. The obligatory Norris Red Indian chops and a bicycle kick win the match for him in 4 minutes and 34 seconds as the fans cheered the fact that the torture was over. But this match felt a lot longer. But this was four minutes of my life that I have wasted. Shite. Two more title matches still to come in this program. War Games the match beyond. And we've had some great action. A new television champion already. And we're off to a running start at Ball Brawl, Jess. Well, I'll tell you, we're one for one with title changes. We could end up with three new champions before this night in Houston's over. You're exactly right. Also an added match coming up next. Two Colt Scorpio, Marcus Bagwell against the equalizer, Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff. But let's go to a very special man, our broadcast colleague we've known for many months now, Scott Dunlap, with this special interview. Who? Thank you, Tony and Jesse. With me now is the British Bulldog, Davy Boy Smith. One of the participants in War Games. And British Bulldog tonight, you're in the war games. You got the quickness of Harlem Heat, the power of Vader, and Big Sid Vicious. Your comments. Well, you know, Scott, Vader is very strong and very tough. Sid Vicious is very quick. And Harlem Heat is very sneaky. But the British Bulldog, they've got the power to watch out for him. Then you've got the natural Dustin Rhodes. Then you've got the speed of Sting. And now we've got the big shock master, all 400 plus pounds. We're not going to quit. We're not going to surrender. We're going to see who is the champion at War Games. Let's go back to the ring and the irrepressible Gary Michael Capella. Oh, I bloody love Scott Dunlap. His Twitter profile is amazing. And I loved that WCW gave this lad a platform. Davy Boy was very kind to the lad as well and gave him his best generic witness magic. What a guy. WCW next attempt to get the Charlie Norris stink off of the ring canvas by bringing us a so-called bonus tag team match as the man fans love to hate, Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff, teams with the man he brought to WCW, the Equaliser, to take on the team of Two Cold Scorpio and Marcus Alexander Bagwell. And it's evident that Scorpio and Bagwell have been practising their dance moves backstage as they shook and jive on their way to the ring. The fans start with the Paula chants immediately, which is ace. And Jesse even makes a clever reference to the movie White Men Can't Jump to describe Bagwell's dance moves before effortlessly segueing into a plug for his latest movie, Demolition Man, as both movies starred Wesley Snipes, who Ventura calls his best buddy. Scorpio then turns to the camera and challenges the winner of the tag title match. Bagwell and Equalizer start proceedings, with Equalizer looking pretty good throughout. Marcus struggles to gain an advantage until he hits a shoulder tackle. 
Scorpio and Bagwell then double-team the Equaliser and send him outside to regroup. The Equaliser goes absolutely tits and shoves Jesse, who tells Orndorff to control him. He eventually returns to the ring and blocks a drop toe hold by Scorpio before tagging Orndorff in for some double-teaming. Scorpio manages to fight back though with a springboard crossbody and he and Bagwell take control again. Eventually, the equaliser low bridges Bagwell and rams him into the apron. Marcus tries to fight back against the attack with a sunset flip and a crucifix, but neither work. Orndorff and the equaliser continue the two-on-one attack as Bagwell plays face in peril very well. Paul then locks Bagwell in a bear hug until he turns it into a back suplex and tags Scorpio. Scorp cleans house with rapid punches, a drop kick and a flying crossbody, but the match soon descends into the patented WCW tag match breakdown. Orndorff levels too cold with a clothesline and the baddies try to double-team Bagwell, but Orndorff accidentally hits the equaliser. Scorpio then capitalises with a 450 splash for the win in 10 minutes and 46 seconds. Post-match, Orndorff and the equaliser get their heat back and hit a flying knee to Scorpio and a suplex to Bagwell to leave the good guys laid out in the ring. And this match was probably solid at best. You certainly couldn't call it any more than quite good, but it was fine for what it was. It was very noticeable towards the end of the match though that Orndorff was having to guide the equaliser through spots, which took away from the match a bit. But the right team wins, and we look to have a challenge for the tag titles coming up from the coffee and cream of WCW, so giving them the win made sense. But they could have faced better opponents. Alright, thanks guys, and as you can see I am now joined by the new world television champion... Lord Stephen Regal and Sir William. Mr. Regal, you won that match under their dubious circumstances. Even you would have to agree with that. Mr. Bischoff, you know the rules. You don't talk unless he wants to talk to you. But tomorrow morning, we'll be boarding an aeroplane and we shall be flying to London to be highly commended by the Queen. Being the only Englishman to obtain such a title, I'm sure it will be a great honor. Now, as I... Return to this land of decadence and debauchery. I will defend this title with the honor and pride that you lowly, peasantly people have come to expect. Wait a minute, let's talk about honor and pride. You call winning a match by your uh, valet with a cane, you call that honorable? Mr. Bischoff, to you and all of these lowly people, I not only am a lord, but I am also a gentleman. If you can't trust me, who can you trust? Absolutely no one. Let's get down to the ring. Sir William shouldn't be allowed to talk. The minute he opens his Memphis mouth, the mystique of the quaint English gentleman goes away. Regal can already talk for himself. He doesn't need this loser. Get rid. Regal understands the gimmick and character perfectly while Bill Dundee is just bringing this act down. But one man in WCW who doesn't bring the mood down is hot newcomer Ice Train, as the jacked-up human embodiment of Thomas the Tank Engine chugga-chugga-choo-choo-chooses Shanghai Pierce for his next victim. But it's no 60-second squash here. There's some shoving and grappling to start before Pierce complains to the referee of hair-pulling. Ice Train delivers a shoulder block with authority and we get a test of strength, which Pierce uses to reel Train in for a kick and Tex Lazinger trips Ice Train at ringside, 
leaving him open for a barrage of kicks and elbows from Pierce. Pierce then attempts to suplex Ice Train, who reverses the hold and lands a backdrop. Pierce manages to get Ice Train with a thumb in the eye before he and Tex attempt to use the bull rope on Train, who impressively runs right through it to rock the Texicans before Ice Train wins with the power slam in 3 minutes and 24 seconds. And I liked this match for what it was, as I like Ice Train, but we've now had three worldwide calibre matches on this pay-per-view, though this one has probably been the best of the three so far. It's probably an indictment of all the star power being in two matches on this card, but the fans at least were vocal and got involved. But they would have a nice long rest in our next match, as the Nasty Boys challenged two-thirds of the three horsemen, the WCW World Tag Team Champions, the Enforcer Arn Anderson, and Pretty Paul Roma. And just listen to Jesse Ventura being excellent pre-match. And of course, our next pay-per-view... Our next pay-per-view in World Championship Wrestling will be October 24th. That's a Sunday night at 7 o'clock. It's Halloween Havoc. And you got to hang out with me on Halloween? Well, yeah. I've been hanging out with you for a couple of years now, so why not? You ain't never spent a Halloween with me, Shivani. That, that event will come from uh, New Orleans, Louisiana. Halloween Havoc this year. On the Sunday. French Quarter, you and I, New Orleans, Halloween. I'll just hang out with you the day of the matches. How does that sound? Two of us will go in and only one of us will return, Tony, and it won't be you. In just a few moments, two teams will go in. One will return the World Tag Team Champions, the Nasty Boys, against the team of Paul Roma and Arn Anderson, the Horseman, who became World Tag Team Champions on the 18th of August. A World Tag Team Championship that many people say you being the most vocal, that was tainted because of an injury to Flying Brian. Absolutely it was tainted. The Hollywood Blondes, the two Hollywood Blondes never lost the title. They had to substitute Lord Steven. You don't turn away from me when I'm, I'm talking and I'm doing my analyzing. You pay attention. They were robbed, but we'll find out tonight who will win between the Horsemen and the Nasty Boys. The Nasty Boys have a surprise. We're ready to go for the World Tag Team title. Don't ever turn away from me again and get interested in women at ringside. And I admit it, the man's growing on me. Having beaten what was essentially a makeshift team to win the tag titles, the Horsemen tandem have been largely ignored on TV, so they need a good showing here against an established team perched from the WWF. Michael Buffer does the big match intro again, and we're off to the races. We've also found out where Missy Hyatt has been tonight, as she's revealed to be the manager of the Nasties. Missy Hyatt had last been seen promising revenge on Ric Flair, who had been constantly ignoring her on TV during his return to the company, so it makes sense that she would get involved in horseman business. And if you're planning on watching this match later, make yourself some dinner first, because this one could last a good while. Thankfully, though, there's plenty of jokes from commentary during the match against poor Missy Hyatt's massive knockers. Nobbs and Roma start with a classic pose-off for the fans, which Roma wins convincingly. Nobbs tries to jump Roma, who moves and catches both nasties with power slams and drop kicks. The nasties regroup, so fans throw dollar bills at Missy and call her a crack whore. Welcome to the 90s. Sags then demands Anderson, who tags in, taking control and attacking Sags' leg. He breaks free and tags in Nobbs, who receives the same treatment. Arn and Roma continue the attack, and the match, and seemingly time, slows. 
The Nasties take control by double-teaming Anderson and slow the match way down with long chin locks. Nobbs and Sags then take turns locking Arn in an abdominal stretch until he manages to reverse it. The referee of course misses Anderson's tag to Roma though, so Arn falls victim to more holds. They attack his back for ages until he finally hits a double face buster and tags Roma, who hits R2 for the hot tag finisher sequence and cleans house with youthful athleticism and hits a double noggin knocker and missile dropkick. But the nasties rally and double team him again. But of course we know the finish and Sags goes up top to deliver the doomsday bulldog off Nobbs' shoulders. But do the heck! Arn shoves Sags into the ring and hits a picture-perfect spine buster. Roma follows up with a flying splash, but the referee is distracted, as is customary for the traditional WCW tag match breakdown. Sags takes the opportunity to hit Roma with a flying axe handle, and Nobbs covers for the win in 23 minutes and 58 seconds. And let me tell you, this match felt every bit of its length in a bad way. The fundamentals for a good tag match are here. The Nasties are natural and excellent heels, Hyatt as a heel manager works, and Anderson allows himself to absorb the punishment so that Roma can get the shine from the fans when he gets the hot tag. But whoever gave this match this amount of time wants drowning in a bath? These two didn't click in this sort of match either. The Nasties will have long matches still in their WCW careers, spoiler alert, but they will be entertaining brawls that suit these two better. I'm also biased towards the horsemen, but it was too soon to take the belts off them. But they had to lose them tonight because, as you may guess, Eric Bischoff, in his infinite wisdom, had recorded four months' worth of TV in Florida, showing the nasties as tag champions, so an audible simply couldn't be called. This was one of the matches I was looking forward to as well, and it ended up being watchable at best. The callback to Missy Hyatt having an issue with Flair and his pals was great though, and she suits the dynamic of the Nasty Boys well, so I'm prepared to see how this goes. Also, a gold star goes to the fans that chanted Porky Pig whenever Brian Nobbs was in the ring. You'll love to see it. Missy Hyatt, you were a surprise to all when you came out with the Nasty Boys. How much difference did you make in them winning this title? It doesn't make a matter if I make a difference or not, because you know what, my Nasty Boys are the World Tag Team Champions, and I told Rick Flair I'd get you back. Jesse the body, we said we were gonna do it, and we did it. The four horsemen are dead via the nasty boys. Yo, the sweet smell of victory. We said we were gonna be the champs and wear the gold. Now this is the reign of the nasty boys. Well, there you got it, everyone. The nasty boys promised they'd win it with the help of Missy Hyatt. They did it. Now let's go to this special of Cactus Jack. Say what you will about these boys, but they can cut a classic old school promo like nobody's business. Wonderful stuff. Right then, for the benefit of those of you who have forgotten a lot of the long-winded Cactus Jack babyface journey, WCW provide a handy, bite-sized recap that makes it all make sense. Yeah. 
It all began for Cactus Jack back in April of this year. He went one-on-one -on -one against Vader in a grueling matchup on WCW Saturday night and won the heart-stopping match by a countout. An irate Vader immediately demanded a return bout for the next week. The match was set. However, prior to the match, Cactus, during the interview, discussed his emotions and his mysterious bag. The match was nothing less than a war. It ended with Race and Vader attempting to end Jack's career. Cactus Jack didn't move after that power bomb on the floor. A shocked television audience watched on as he was taken to a hospital, and his precious bag was removed. Weeks passed with no definite word on his condition. WCW then dispatched reporter Catherine White for updates. She found the assignment tougher than anticipated. Cactus was not at the hospital, nor was he at home. Then, based on a clue, Catherine White headed to the streets of Cleveland, where, after encountering many problems, she finally located Cactus Jack. He was living with the homeless in Cleveland and apparently suffering from amnesia. Jack, Cactus Jack. Why do you call me by that name? Oh, I see, Swampy. He told you my name was Jack, but I'm just a simple sailor with no name. I'm afraid Swampy's a bit adrift, too much shore leave. She attempted many times to jog his memory, even brought his family to Cleveland, but all attempts were futile. I'm sorry, but I don't know you. Uh, I wish I did. Jack, this is your son. This, this is your child to be. Jack, I'm your wife. Catherine White, after that last emotional encounter, gave up. And WCW fans figured they would never see Cactus Jack again. However, something began to happen. Race admitted to taking the bag and viewed it as a symbol of the end of Cactus Jack. At the same time, Race started receiving many packages. Was it a prank or was it really Cactus Jack? No one was sure. But on August 18th, four months after he was carried away to a hospital, Cactus Jack made a shocking return to the ring during the Vader Davy Boy World Title match. <laughs> Vader and Race immediately put a price on his head and employed Yoshi Kwan to collect the bounty. Jack, on the other hand, had two things on his mind the bag and to get back in the ring with Vader one more time. He told the world his story from the hospital, to the streets of Cleveland, to the ring again. I was walking down a street last week, a street very much like this. A man stopped me and said, Cactus Jack, you didn't really lose your memory, did you? And I said, no. He said, Cactus Jack, that wasn't really your wife on TV either, was it? And I said, no. Cactus Jack, then that wasn't really your child on TV then, was it? And I said, no. He said, Cactus Jack, did anyone really believe you lost your mind? And I said, yes! You see, I know for a fact that there were two people who believed it every inch. And that's Harley Race and Vader. And they didn't believe it because they were stupid because you don't win the world championship by being an idiot. No, they believed it because they wanted to. You see, Vader, I know what goes inside that sick head of yours. You're like a big game hunter, yeah. And look on your wall. You got the ribs of Sting, the shoulder of Ron Simmons, the back of Joe Thurman, and the neck of Nikita Koloff. 
But something was missing, wasn't it? Yeah. Somewhere over that fireplace in that home of yours, there was that space for that Saskatchewan moose. You said, bring me the head of Cactus Jack! But you can't have it, Vader. You can't have it. Yes, you put me on the shelf for a while, but all that did was earn me valuable time. Time for thoughts of you to brew like a bag of tea and a sea of hatred. And this is no sipping tea, Vader. It's brutality. And for you, it's a heavy deuce of reality. Because when Cactus Jack comes back, keep this in mind, he's coming with bad intentions. And if they can arrest the man for the thoughts that go through his mind, then bring out the rope and hang me here. Because, Vader, I got some sick thoughts, and every one of them, sir, centers around you. You tried to change my world, now we reverse roles. It's my time. And you're going to find out that a day in the life of Cactus Jack is worse than any specter, ghoul, or ghost you could have imagined. I'm coming for you. Big Bang! Big Bang! And Mrs. Foley's baby boy makes his in-ring return to face Mr. Eggfried Nice, the king of Ning Ning, the Rising Sun's favourite fictional son, Worcester's hardest man himself, Yoshi Kwan. So same as when Cactus first turned face on Big Van Vader, he has to go through Vader's mates to get to Vader himself. I like Chris Champion though, so racist gimmick or not, I was looking forward to this match. It's pretty much Cactus Jack by numbers, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. During the entrances, a fan blatantly has a Mean Gene sign in the crowd. Tony tries his best to keep things mysterious, until Jesse gives the game away and says that WCW had signed him. Nice one, Jess. You were doing so well tonight. But Jack immediately attacks Harley Race and Quan tries to jump him. But Jack takes him to the mat before landing a headbutt and a running knee attack on the ropes before both men tumble outside on a Cactus clothesline. Cactus then goes after Race again, but this time Quan successfully intercepts him. They fight to the ramp and Quan hits an enzigiri and falling headbutt. Both men then head to the second ring where Quan hits palm thrusts and a wheel kick. He even goes for a crane kick as Harley Race Mr Miyagi's it up a treat. But Jack blocks it and rakes Quan's eyes across the ropes. He then hits an inverted atomic drop that rocks Quan. Race trips Jack when he hits the ropes though and holds Jack for Quan. But Cactus avoids the attack and hits a double arm DDT for the win in 3 minutes and 38 seconds. Post-match Jack attacks Harley and suplexes him into the ring before grabbing the leather bag. He then turns to the camera and tells Vader he's next at Halloween Havoc, followed by a bang-bang for the camera. And, okay, it, it wasn't good. But it was short, mercifully. Quan was merely a body for a triumphant return. And while Cactus looked a little bit off the place, and there was a lot of miscommunication, the fans were forgiving and the right man won. Hopefully, Jack gets accelerated along to face Vader at the upcoming Halloween Havoc. Referee counts one, two, three. Cactus wins the bout and then follows it up with this move. Beautiful look at Suplex. Catches Harley Race, brings him into the ring, sees the bag, takes the bag, gets it back and challenges Vader. Well, so far in this War Games... Nice coat. In this War Games event, we have seen two titles change here at Fall Brawl. New World Television Champion, Lord Steven Regal. Hey, how you doing? And new World Tag Team Champions, the Nasty Boys. And we still have the world title on the line between Ric Flair and Ravishing Rick Root. It all started between these two on a set of a flair for the gold. When Ravishing Rick Root 
was very, very irate about Fifi, I guess, snubbing. Yeah. Look, look at this. Rude laying one on her. And then he got his, didn't he? There's more where that came from. Coming with me now. Yeah. But that was just the beginning. Because later in a flare for the gold, Flair got it from behind the belts and Rick, got the rude awakening Rick, that we will see. Rick, I guess, I guess you got your answer. Sorry. Hey, next week. You okay, baby? You gotta understand things like that happen. Next week, we go again. A flare for the you okay, honey, huh? You alright? Next week, we go again. Look at this. The nature boy Ric Flair getting submarined by ravishing Rick Root spins him around. Where Root awakening. And that's how you get a title shot, Tony. You're a gold digger, and Flair has a belt. Well, that was all in the past. This is now. The title is on the line. Ravishing Rick Rude did not win the U.S. title, but he has his focus set on his first world title ever as we go back to the ring. And the first of our two main events is up next as the newly christened WCW International Heavyweight Championship is on the line as Ravishing Rick Rude looks to take the belt from the champion, the Nature Boy Ric Flair. Both Tony Schiavone and Michael Buffer lie to the fans and state that this is Rick Rude's first ever opportunity at a world title, which is bollocks as he challenged the Ultimate Warrior at SummerSlam 1990, so suck on that, nerds win. Buffer says that Flair would like to say a few words before the match, but Rude snatches the mic instead. Rude taunts Rick and holds up a painting of a beaten and bruised nature boy. He then reveals his airbrushed tights with Fifi's picture on them. Both men trade headlocks and wristlocks before Rude misses a flying fist drop. Flair uses the opening to quickly grab a figure four, but Rude makes it to the ropes. They fight in and out of the ring, but Rude is distracted by Fifi and Flair hits a flying axe handle. Flair then decides that things are getting way too exciting and works Rude's arm for a long time. He cuts off Rude's comeback attempts and eventually both men go over the ropes on a crossbody. Rude attacks Flair on the floor and suplexes him into the ring before attacking Flair's back and neck for ages. Flair attempts to fight back until Rude press slams him onto the ropes and sends him to the floor with a Flair flip. Rude then gets his own back and locks Flair in a long bear hug until Rick goes for the eyes. Rude answers with a cheap shot and some flying axe handles, but Flair eventually punches him on another attempt. Both men trade suplexes and a DDT before Flair blocks a Rude awakening and hits the move himself. Rude gets a foot on the ropes though and rolls up Flair in a figure four attempt, but Flair answers with another flying axe handle. Rude responds to Flair going for a third axe handle with a flying fist drop before throwing Flair to the floor. He then taunts Fifi and she slaps him, so he kisses her again. An angry Flair returns and locks Rude in a figure four, but the referee is still distracted by Fifi. Rude uses the opening to grab some brass knuckles from his tights and knocks out Flair for the win in 30 minutes and 47 seconds. And I hate to say this, but I could literally feel myself ageing as every minute ticked by. There's the makings of a really good match here between two workers that I'm a massive fan of, but there was something really off about this match, which is just disappointing. For a start, the match is about 10 minutes too long, and a hot opening and great finishing sequence is spoiled by a really slow, poorly paced middle. 
It was rumoured that the two Ricks didn't get on behind the scenes, which contributed to the match that we got, as neither man looked to be cooperating with each other. And what should have been a hot, hard-hitting match became 31 minutes of Rest Hold City. It was nice that Rude won a world title finally, but of course he'd already been filmed with the belt in matches and promos in Florida, so it had to happen, whether Flair liked it or not. The psychology was a mess, the story going into the match sucked, and the fans were largely apathetic. I feel for Ric Flair here, as he's legitimately one of the greatest workers of all time, but even I have to accept that sometimes good workers have bad matches, and this was bad. But commentary have been consistently good throughout, and we get some pre-match analysis for the main event one last time. Look at she strikes him! Good. Now I can't believe it! Look at how he rewards her after getting hit! He gives her a tender kiss! There you got it, right on camera! Yes, sir! Rude going to the trunks! Brilliant move! Referee tied up, pow! Hits Flair straight in the bridge of the nose! Knocks him senseless! Rude gets himself into position, one, two, three, covers, and we've had three titles change hands here in Houston, Texas. And we have our, as they're getting Flair out of the ring now, boy, what a match that was. New world champion Ravishing Rick Rude, three new champions. Our next pay-per-view before we go to our main event here at Fall Brawl will be coming up on October 24th. It is a Halloween Havoc live from New Orleans at the lakefront. Boy, what an event that's going to be. Oh, Halloween, my favorite holiday. October 24th, it's become a tradition in World Championship Wrestling, Halloween Havoc. We are going to have more big announcements in this program concerning the main event for Halloween Havoc. Still to come, but you know, we've had some tremendous action. We've had some unexpected things occur. But since 1987, one of the most expected things in WCW has been war games, the match beyond expected because they know, fans do, they're in for a fight. They're in for a fight, and the wrestlers know, Tony, they're in for pain and suffering. Nobody goes into this match, into war games, not feeling that you're going to come out 100%. You're going to get hurt. Every guy is going to get hurt. In this war games, Jesse, we've had so many veterans go through war games and go through the battles. The nature boy, Ric Flair, has been a part of war games. The American dream, Dusty Rhodes. Dustin Rhodes, who's in this event, has been part of war games. But just as we saw just last night on WCW Saturday night, Dustin Rhodes was injured. We have to wonder if he's 100% or not. We'll find out as we go to Gary Capetta to start war games, the match beyond. And with that, it's up to seven of WCW's elite talent and Fred Ottman to salvage what has been a rough night for WCW. As Sting's superpowers, the man called Sting, Davy Boy Smith, WCW United States Champion, the natural Dustin Rhodes, and the Shockmaster team up to take on Vader's Vanquishers. WCW World Heavyweight Champion Big Van Vader and Sid Vicious, collectively known as the Masters of the Powerball, teaming up with Kane and Curl, the brothers known as Harlem Heat. Gary Michael Capetta, swept up by his own self-importance, takes an age to explain the rules of a match that wouldn't normally be this difficult to explain. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the event we have all been waiting for. The most brutal battle in all of professional wrestling. It is time for War Games. Very briefly, the rules. War Games consist of seven periods in all. The first period will last five minutes, 
All remaining periods will last two minutes. Each of the two teams will send one man into the war zone and battle one-on-one -on -one for the first period. At the end of the first period, the head referee will flip a coin. The next team winning the coin toss will then send a second man in, thus gaining the advantage of a two-against-one situation. At the end of the second period, the disadvantaged team sends a second man into the war zone, thus evening the sides for the third period at two against two. At the conclusion of the third period, the team which won the coin toss sends in its third man, regaining the advantage. The two teams alternate during the remaining periods until all eight men are in. Then the match beyond begins. Surrender or submission is the only way to win the match beyond. Pinfalls will not be allowed. Countouts will not be permitted. There will be no disqualifications. Official time will be kept at ringside. The head referee has the final say in war games. And now, ladies and gentlemen, let the games begin! I know, right? What a twat. In what is always a breathtaking visual, we cut to the cage lowering over the two rings and all the pyro and ballyhoo that goes with it. Vader leads his team out first, like all good heels, while Sting's team is led out by Road Warrior Animal. Dustin Rhodes, in a sharp contrast to former tag partner Ricky Steamboat in our opening match, is also carrying a debilitating rib injury. Now just remember that. The match will start with one of each team member entering the ring for five minutes, then a coin toss will determine which team gets the advantage. I started to get worried going into this match, as there was only around 20 minutes of showtime left. Animal advises that Shockmaster start the match because Dustin is hurt, but Rhodes sneaks into the cage while they're not looking. Commentary make out that as a Texas boy, Rhodes is trying to strengthen the pride of the Rhodes family name or something. Vader and Dustin start the match and trade hard shots until Rhodes gets Vader down in the corner. He then removes his boots and hits Vader with it until Vader surprises him with a kick and a clothesline. They brawl back and forth with commentary doing their absolute best to let the viewers know that Dustin is struggling to mount any serious offensive moves due to his rib injury. But he's not selling the ribs at all. He's a literal superman. I mean, I can forgive him for being relatively new to the business, but it still looks really iffy. Vader hits a Vader bomb and attacks the ribs, but an unscathed Dustin answers with a DDT and starts using the boot again but Vader rams Rhodes into the cage. Then the heels win the coin toss and Kane enters the match, and he and Vader double-team Dustin and send him into the cage again until he's bleeding. They continue the attack until the round ends and Sting joins them, who cleans house with clotheslines, punches and a stinger splash to Vader, while Rhodes hits Kane with a lariat. Another round ends and Sid enters the match. He immediately fights with Sting, who looks to fight back until Sting gets hit with an avalanche attack by Vader. Sid then chokeslams Sting and the heels triple team him. Sting tries to fight back with a face buster, but the three-on-one attack is too much. Sid then forgets how he treated Brian Pillman at WrestleWar 92 as he and the lads press Sting against the ceiling and slam him as Bulldog joins the match. Sid attacks him, but Davy hits a clothesline and power slams Vader. Sting and Davy then press Sid against the ceiling. 
Sting and Bulldog are doing their absolute best here to make a match happen, with Sting in particular doing enough for three men. However, Kane and Vader double-team Bulldog, while Super Dustin whips Sid into the cage, but Sid has to awkwardly jump because he's moving too slowly. Curl joins the match to complete Vader's team and takes a flying leap from one ring to the other, but misses his target. Looked impressive though, and he recovers and joins Vader in double-teaming Rhodes. While on commentary, Jesse and Tony joke about Shockmaster tripping when he enters the match. The final round ends though and Shockmaster joins the fray, but he doesn't trip. In fact, he's not clumsy at all. He's an absolute beast. He attacks every member of the other team and rams Cole into the cage a few times before locking him in a bear hug for the immediate win in a dreadful finish as the match ends in 16 minutes and 39 seconds. And it literally ended as quickly as the Shockmaster just getting in the ring and bear hugging the first body he finds. And all that star power combined together to produce the absolute worst war games match of all time. And that's not hyperbole either. Sting seems to be the only guy putting a shift in, while his teammates and opponents go through the motions. Dustin Rhodes in particular is one of the worst offenders, because he can't even make it look like he's carrying an injury, and he's carrying on like he's indestructible, making the entire heel team look weak. There is absolutely nothing memorable to speak of in this match, and the finish happens instantly, and nobody cares. It's like WCW wanted to just sweep the Shockmaster thing under the carpet and be done. But commentary do try to salvage something out of the match afterwards. And look at he just fell again. No. You didn't beat nobody! Look at Vader. Vader, get back to him! Come on back! We demand status on that shot! We're still standing! It was a war like we thought. I didn't give up! What's going on here? I did not give up! Yeah, he Where's did. the referee? Didn't you see him shake his head? Well, he's claiming he didn't give up, Tony, but I'm I gotta verify with you, yes, he did give up. And who can blame him? I mean, the Shockmaster, probably the most powerful bear hug. I've never seen anybody batter Vader like that. Well, War Games, the match beyond is over. Sting, Davy Boy, the Shockmaster, and Dustin Rhodes. We have to be concerned about the condition of Dustin Rhodes on many levels. The match beyond is over, and I rate. Sick and died on ass clock! Well, I'm glad they're in that cage, I can tell you that. They're very angry men right now. Well, they're coming out right now. The Colonel's waiting, Harley Race. What a night it's been here in Houston, Tony. The Shockmaster making the difference. The guy can't walk and chew gum at the same time, but he proved he can definitely put a bear hug on. Three titles changed hands here at Fall Brawl in Houston. War Games, the match beyond, was every bit the fight we thought it would be. Cactus Jack. A triumphant return for him. Beat Yoshi Kwan, got the bag back. He's looking for Vader. There we are, right in the middle of the battleground. And three championships change his hand. Lord Steven Regal, the new television, world television champion. New tag team champions, the Nasty Boys, who sprung Missy Hyatt on us. And of course, ravishing Rick Rude. Now makes the Nature Boy the former champion exactly. for 10 times. Well. Mr. Daniel Esteem, they 
medieval intestines! Oh, you big goof, you Shockmaster! Shockmaster was the difference here. No doubt about it. And August 18th, he made quite a debut as he spilled himself into a flare for the gold. And you laughed a lot. Fence, our next event, Halloween Havoc, and we have found out it will be. Finally, Cactus Jack getting back at Vader because it will be spin the wheel, make the deal. Whoa, spin the wheel, make the deal, Vader and Jack. <laughs> this, has been, this has been World Championship Wrestling's Fall Brawl. We'll see you next week in all of our programs and see you on October 24th from New Orleans for Halloween Havoc. And I'm happy to get out of Texas. I'm sure you are. See you, fans. Right, cue the drum and bass as I've got a lot to say. I have tried, and I mean really tried, to find something positive to say about Fall Brawl 93 after the great opener, but in all honesty, I just can't. The build to the event was excellent, leaving the fan invested in the outcomes of matches, but once again, WCW in 1993 has promised much and failed to deliver anything. Taping four months of TV has meant that results have had to be set in stone, whether or not the matches themselves would be any good, meaning that this travesty of a show was what the paying public in 1993 got. Outside of a solid TV title opener, there's not much to get worked up about here. The remaining title matches are flat. Wargames itself is terrible, and this show is stuffed with meaningless filler that would probably serve as background noise on Worldwide or Pro. The creative is on its ass, what with the turgid rubbish that they put out for Mick Foley before he returned, and the scrambling to salvage anything from the woeful Shockmaster debut. Eric Bischoff is doing a lot right, such as updating the look and feel of the show and attracting recognisable names to his company, but the product as a whole is struggling. Solid workers like Barry Windham, Stunning Steve Austin and Brad Armstrong can't make it onto this pay-per-view, while people like Brian Pillman are on the shelf. Meanwhile, solid talents like Shane Douglas and Tom Zenk have left the company to try their luck elsewhere. In the meantime, talentless hacks like Charlie Norris and Big Sky and never gonna be's like Yoshi Kwan and The Equaliser are not only featured weekly, but are apparently good enough for high spots on the pay-per-view as well. It's an absolute joke. But there are a few bright spots here. For example, the production values are excellent, although the camera crew do cut to empty seats too much. And the commentary tonight is absolutely flawless, with Shavoni and Ventura finding a good rhythm together. And, as I've said a few times now, Steamboat vs Regal is a great opener by 1993 standards. Unfortunately though, the show just careens off a metaphorical clip from there. Too many filler matches, undeserving workers on the card, and a double main event that failed to deliver can only find me at my most positive, calling this show forgettable at best. You see, here's the thing. Modern wrestling is mired in too much negativity recently. The figurehead of the biggest company in the world has resigned from his position at TKO Group amidst allegations of sex trafficking. The owner of their biggest rivals, in North America at least, 
has seemingly buried his head in the sand over allegations of one of his biggest and most recognisable stars allegedly pulling a similar thing. And the guy's still on TV, may we add. The speaking out movement has eventually achieved nothing, and I could go on. But I watch wrestling to forget my problems, just for a little bit, and return to a time where I had no worries. And that's why I do a nostalgia podcast, so it's an extra kick in the ball bag when even 90s wrestling drags me down. I'd not watched this show before, and was genuinely looking forward to doing so, but this was a waste of 2 hours and 46 minutes. The only thing I can say here is that Fall Brawl 1993 is one of WCW's worst shows of all time, and certainly isn't worth your precious time. If you haven't seen this show before today, don't bother. Just skip to Halloween Havoc instead. And if you're one of those listeners that watches the shows before I review them, I am deeply sorry for putting you through that, and I hope to make it up to you. of the night can go to nothing else but the TV title opener. It does tell a great story and both men can work, so that's good enough for me. The superstar of the night is Sting, who worked his socks off to make the War Games match somewhat watchable when the camera was on him. The highlight of the night is the sterling work put in by Jesse the Body Ventura to inform and entertain the viewer, with excellent viewpoints and analysis throughout. And the low light of the night is every other match on the card. Watch the first half hour if you must, then bleach your eyes and never watch this trek again. And guys, I can only apologise for subjecting you to this tripe, but I promise we have a decent episode of Raw to go over tomorrow. So have your bath before bullseye, and I'll see you in the morning, ducks. And in the meantime and in between time, stay beefy, Meatsiders!